You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Well, good morning. How are we? Are you guys awake today? No. Are you guys awake today? That's a little better. Hey, you guys want to hear a secret? Want to hear a secret? So uh, being a mobile church is always interesting. Uh, we had some technical difficulties this morning, and therefore uh, the person running our slides is back there. Can you believe that? Everybody say, hey, Abby. Hey, Abby. Abby, say, hey. hey. <laughs> so it's pretty dark back there. If, uh, if she gets behind on slides, somebody just yell, wake up, Abby. And maybe she'll, maybe she'll come to and, and keep going. Uh, grateful for the ways that we all serve, including sitting behind the, the um, curtains back there. It's great. Uh, my name is Brandon. If I haven't met you yet, I'm one of the pastors here. We are in a series. We've been making uh, the case that God's plan to bring his kingdom to earth is through spirit-filled, mature, compelling disciples of Jesus. We've been walking through the covenant practices of our missionary member covenant, which is what you agree to officially become a member here. Uh, so it's not all of us in the room, but uh, it's a lot of us. And we've been trying to paint the picture of uh, a baseline Christian maturity. And I would imagine that as we've covered different disciplines, there may be one or two that have stuck out that you feel pretty good with. You feel like you're maturing and growing in that area, but there also may be others where not so much. So some of you could go on a billboard about serving others. You serve every opportunity you get, and you would do anything for anyone, but you haven't cracked open your Bible in a month. Come to think of it, you don't even know where it is. You just thought, where did I put that thing? So different areas of strength and weakness hopefully are getting exposed. And our topic for today is is interesting because I'd argue that as a group, we are culturally set up for this to be a collective weakness. Uh, There may be some of us for whom this happens to be a shining area of growth and strength, but I think the odds are stacked against us for that to be true of a lot of us. This is an area of maturity where I believe invisible forces around us shape and mold how we think about things in ways that are totally oblivious to us. So I'll try to prove that point to you quickly. I want to ask you a question. The question is, what was the last thing you bought? Think about that for a second. What was the last thing you bought? Jog your memory, the last purchase that you made. And now I want to ask you, why did you buy it? What led you to that decision and what was your reasoning behind it? Now, what if I told you that unbeknownst to you, that decision was shaped and affected by people you have never heard of? What would you say to that? (laughs) I'm going to try to make that case for you. I'd also always heard thinkers talk about the consumeristic nature of our culture, and I always shook my head in agreement with that, but for a while that was a little cloudy to me. It's kind of like someone saying, man, our culture is so American, and I'm like, yeah, it is, but I also don't know what it would like for our culture to not be American either. And then I watched this fascinating documentary on YouTube called Century of the Self, Century of the Self. And it showed examples of advertisements from before World War I. And they were all utilitarian in nature. They were like, hey, did your shoes break? We have new shoes. (laughs) Hey, did your car break down? Lucky for you, we make new cars. (laughs) And they last a long time, so it won't break down again. The advertisements were very much so like that. 
And then there was a guy named Edward Bernays, who actually was the nephew of Sigmund Freud. And he studied his uncle's psychology to determine what makes people do the things they do. And during the war, the Nazis used psychology, uh, it was called propaganda, a way of manipulating people with ideas. So in the documentary, it shows Edward Bernays as an old man sitting around this table eating and drinking. And he says this, the quote's going to pop up on the screen. He said, I decided that if you could use propaganda for war, you can certainly use it for peace. Peace meaning business, of course. He goes on to say that the term propaganda had gotten a bad connotation because of the Germans, so he decided to use a new word. He came up with the term public relations. It was supposedly the first use of that term, but more accurately, it describes marketing and advertising. Then the documentary traces how he used these ideas to help companies shift their advertising strategies. So corporations were terrified at this point that people would eventually just have enough goods and stop buying all the things that they were mass producing. So they realized they needed to shift America from uh, the way they think about buying things. As a banker from Lehman Brothers at the time was clear about what was necessary. This is what he said. He said, we must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire. Think about that. Trained to desire. To want new things even before the old have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality in America. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. Then they showed a recent executive from Lehman Brothers who said it was during this time period that the American worker became the American consumer. The American worker became the American consumer. And Edward Bernays continued to work with corporations to make this change happen, convincing an entire society that you don't buy things just for need, but you buy them because you desire them, to express your inner sense of self. And the most haunting part of uh, the first part of the documentary for me was uh, where they showed a female celebrity from the early 1900s, and she was talking about what she called the psychology of dress. And so picture this old black and white frame of this woman who is wearing this white shirt and gray skirt, and it looks just utterly drab, just grossly, utterly drab to any modern eye. And she's talking to women in the room, and she literally says this. She says, I'm sure you all are interesting people, but you don't look interesting, <laughs> Why do you wear the same clothes all the time? You all look the same. Why wouldn't you dress in a more interesting way to express yourselves and to show us who you are on the inside? And when I watched this, I literally was like, oh my gosh, we got got, y'all. <laughs> Straight up, we got got. So I'll ask you the, again, the last purchase that you made. Why did you buy it? Do you even really know? Might there be hidden reasons and motivations unknown to you that people and corporations have been working to instill in you and me for generations? And isn't that a little terrifying? Your culture has fashioned you into a consumer in ways that are impossible for us to fully wrap our minds around. And here's the thing, being a consumer and having gratitude are at odds with one another. You can't be grateful for what you have and be eaten up with a desire for something new at the same time. You have to grow disdain for what you have 
to want the new thing. So consumerism kills gratitude and contentment. And I would argue that we have no idea how much joy is sapped from our lives because we've been turned into consumers by people we've never heard of. You can't be grateful for your blessings if your baseline identity is that of a consumer because you never have enough. You can't truly be content. You are always concerned with whether or not you'll have enough and whether you'll be taken care of and whether what you have is good enough to make you happy or to express your inner sense of self. There's a steady anxiousness and discontentment that simmers in your soul and it breeds anxiety by its very nature. Consumerism and anxiety are inseparable. And I'd like to serve you today by showing you how Jesus actually says you can be free. I'm going to help you step into some freedom today that my guess is has escaped you. And one of the solutions to anxiety and discontentment is generosity. Let me show you this. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Abby, you still awake back there? All right, good job. Luke chapter 12, uh, so give you some context for this passage. Uh, Jesus is teaching about money and possessions. And right before this in Luke, Jesus is talking to crowds and he says that we should actively be on our guard against believing that life consists in the abundance of possessions, that more stuff equals more life. And he actually tells a story about a man who has a really good financial year and who stores up all of his extra resources. He hoards and keeps it all for himself. And then the guy learns the hard way that more money cannot actually guarantee what he thinks it can because in that story, God looks at the man and says, you fool, this very night your soul will be required of you. He did that to illustrate that money and possessions cannot be taken with us. They can't deliver on their promises ultimately. All right, let's read the passage. That sets up what he says here starting in verse 22. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So this is such a rich passage with a thousand things we could say about it. But one thing I want to point out today in the context of our series is that Jesus here is talking to his disciples. 
So he shifts from earlier in the chapter, speaking to the crowds about not hoarding up possessions, to here, talking to his disciples about their anxiety. It's an important point to note here. Now remember, many of the disciples had given up everything in their life to follow Jesus, some of which had left houses and families and jobs and money, maybe even walking away with just the clothes on their back to follow this first century rabbi named Jesus. And Jesus looks at these men and women, many of whom have left everything, and he says, don't be anxious. Just pause there and let that sink in for a second, because can you see why they might be anxious? Can you see that? I certainly can. They now own very little to nothing. But then Jesus says, instead of being anxious, they should give more stuff away. Now be honest, does that seem unhelpful to you? When was the last time you were really worried about making ends meet, about having enough? And what would you have done if a friend came up and said, hey, don't be anxious, just give more stuff away? I think my response would be something like, oh, thanks. Are you this helpful to everyone? Or is it just me that gets to benefit from your helpfulness? You're a wizard. Jesus' solution seems so counterintuitive that it almost feels ridiculous. How in the world would giving away your stuff make you less anxious, especially if you don't have much? But I think he's onto something very helpful. So let's work back through the passage and see if we can track his logic. Back in verse 22. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. So note the categories here. He's talking about food and clothing. And Paul in 1 Timothy actually uses these same categories to expose something for us. Because very few people think they are rich. And very few people think they are greedy. We tend to always think being rich means people who have more than us. No matter where you are, it's people who have more than you. And we aren't exactly sure what being greedy looks like, but it's definitely worse than I am, right? <laughs> it's definitely worse than whatever I am. But 1 Timothy 6 uh, exposes some things in us. This is what it says. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. So what do we need to be content according to this passage? Food and clothing or covering, so we could add shelter in that. And then what makes someone rich according to this verse? Having more than food and shelter and clothing. So when the Bible uses the term rich, know that it is almost certainly talking about almost all of us. We don't just have food to eat. Most of us will get to pick what kind of food we eat today. We don't just have clothing. We pick what kind of clothing we wear, what brands and colors and styles. That is amazing. I know most of us don't think of ourselves as rich, but globally and historically speaking, we are. And I'm sharing this because I think it gives us some helpful categories. The first is what we might call needs, survival needs, food, clothing, and shelter. Those are self-explanatory. And then there are what we call wants. 
And wanting is fine. It is fine to want things. But if you have more than you need, the Bible would categorize you as rich. And if you think you need what actually is a want, then the Bible calls you greedy. In other words, my basic needs are met, but what I currently have is not enough for me, and I eagerly desire more. That is greed according to Scripture. Now, it's possible for you to show off your greed in greater or lesser amounts based on how much income and resources God gives you, absolutely. But that means it's also possible for someone to be very wealthy and express their materialism and greed in a larger way than you, but you are actually more greedy than they are. You just can't express it as well as they can because you don't have the money to do so. This is why Jesus totally disagrees with the common reaction that if I had more money, I would totally be generous. He says the exact opposite is true. He says, whoever is faithful in little is faithful in much. How you handle a little is the way you would handle a lot, according to Jesus. You are already showing what you would do if you had more resources. Another word the Bible uses for this is coveting. The concept is so foundational to life with God that it's one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet. And coveting is living with an eye on what God has not given me, believing I could be content if only I had it. So needing is obvious, wanting is fine, coveting is terrible. It can destroy individuals and groups and whole societies and bring ruin and destruction like Paul says in 1 Timothy. It's like cancer that will eat away at your soul. So it's critical that we learn the difference between those three things, needing, wanting, and coveting. And Jesus says here, don't be anxious even about your needs. Your need for food and clothing and shelter are legitimate. They are legitimate concerns. But he says, don't be swept away in concern about them. Pick back up in verse 24. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you were not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? So I don't know that these verses mean what we might think they mean. Because usually when these verses are taught or read, they go something like this. It's like, hey, everything's going to turn out okay for us. Just look at the birds. Nothing bad ever happens to the birds. Look at the grass of the field and its flowers. Everything turns out okay for the flowers. We tend to read it sort of like it's Jesus's Bob Marley moment. <laughs> Don't worry about a thing. Every little thing is going to be all right. Don't worry about a thing. Every little thing is going to be all right. Totally didn't mean to do that, but I just did it. All right. (laughs) 
But that is not Jesus' Bob Marley moment. And I think we all know that Bob Marley not being stressed out had nothing to do with him trusting God. Okay? And everything to do with a different kind of grass. So Jesus is not saying that everything will always turn out all right. Look back at verse 28. If God so clothes the grass, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. His point is not that everything turns out for the birds and the flowers. Sometimes things don't turn out well for them, actually. His point is that God gives the birds and flowers everything they need to glorify him. He's given them exactly what they need to do, what he designed them to do. And when their time is up, their time is up. So he says, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? What a piercing question that is. Your days are numbered by God and he will give you what you need to glorify him with every single one of your days. Verse 29, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. The word seek there has a really strong connotation. It literally means to demand or require, to make it your highest aim in life. It's the idea of demanding or requiring something in order to have peace. So based on that, can I give you an insight about worry and anxiety that I think is very helpful? Here it is. Your anxiety will always be proportional to how fragile your God is. Your anxiety will always be proportional to how fragile your God is. That's good, so you're going to want to write that down somewhere, okay? <laughs> It'll always be proportional to how fragile your God is. So if temporary things are the most important thing to you, you'll always be worried because you can lose them. If your kids turning out okay is not just very important, but the thing you require in order to have peace, you will always be worried. Because literally 1,000 bad things can happen to your kid at every second. Your anxiety will be proportional to how fragile your kids are, and they are quite fragile. Some of us, me included, need to be freed by a slight twist on the verse we just read. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your child's life? If your career going well is the thing that you require in order to have peace, if it's God to you, you will always have something to worry about because you can always get fired or downsized or passed up for the promotion or just not get noticed. You can make a mistake and become the joke of the office this week. Your job is too fragile for you to seek it or require it for your peace. If you require your body and appearance to gain a certain response from yourself or others in order to have peace, man, are you set up for misery. You are set up for constant anxiety because your body is always changing and aging and other people's responses and preferences are always changing. So if that's you, you will die a thousand little deaths before your body becomes old and gray. 
If money is what you require in order to have peace, there will never be a cure for your anxiety. Because how much is truly enough for you, for your kids to guard against unforeseen circumstances? And what if there's a huge recession again? What if the stock prices plummet? What if there's a trade war? How big do the storehouses need to be when they can always get bigger? Your anxiety will always be proportional to how fragile your God is. So seeking or requiring any of these things in order to have peace is a recipe for anxiety. It is a death sentence for peace. Verse 30. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. This is what everyone who doesn't know God chases after, and your father knows that you need them. So he's not saying these things aren't important. They are. It's just that they are too small to seek after. They're too small to demand and require for peace. And he's saying that your father in heaven has promised to give you what you need to glorify him, whether you get those things or not. So there was a time in my life where I was completely free from worry. I mostly just floated about, never concerned about what bad things could happen tomorrow, never concerned about where my next meal was coming from, never anxious about if we'd have enough money coming in next month. I was 100% free from every drop of worry. I was also three years old. I was three. And when I was three, I can't recall having the slightest amount of anxiety about my life yet. I just knew that there would be food when I needed food. I just knew there would continue to be a roof over my head. And I knew that we'd have enough money to keep the lights on. I didn't spend one second being anxious over it. And you could argue that's because I was naive. You could argue that it's because I didn't know how the world worked and I hadn't been exposed to the brutal realities of adult life. And, and that might be true. But I would also point out that there's another reason for that too. And that reason is my dad was worried about those things for me. He was concerned about those things for me. My mom and dad were seeing to it that there was food on the table, that we did pay the rent, that the lights did stay on. My lack of worry was rooted in the fact that they were concerned on my behalf. And I had no doubt in my mind that I would be taken care of. So Jesus' argument for why we shouldn't worry isn't that there won't be concerning things happening. He does not say, don't worry because there's nothing to worry about. He says, don't worry because you have a heavenly father who has promised to take care of you and who knows what you need. A huge difference there. And this is a blood-bought promise for us. He, Jesus died so that you could have this promise on your life so that every night you get to lay all of your concerns in front of God the Father and say, God, you promised to give me what I need to glorify you. So I'm going to go to sleep and let you worry about these things. Verse 31. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Instead of making your job, your kids, your appearance, or whatever it is, instead of making that your ultimate concern, make God's kingdom your ultimate concern. Instead of the primary thing being those things, make God's concerns the primary thing. Demand and require and insist on that. Make it your goal to glorify God with your life. For God's kingdom to become a reality here among us. 
And we continue to see God's heart in all of this in verse 32. Fear not, little flock. What a beautiful phrase there. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So we were created to join God in his mission, to join God in his endeavors to push back darkness in our world. That's our purpose in life. And when that is what you care about most, it actually sets you free from worrying. God wants you to be free from requiring small and non-lasting things for peace. And he wants to give you something permanent and secure, an unshakable kingdom. Because everything outside of his kingdom is fragile. Your savings account, your job, your kids, your appearance and health, all of those things are fragile, but God's kingdom is not. And ironically, when all we require for peace is that we are united to God through Christ and therefore living a life that will last eternally, that sets us free from worry because that is a certain, unshakable future. Because Jesus is going to build his church and the gates of hell cannot stop him. And God will always give us what we need to glorify him. He'll provide you with what you need as well as give you his spirit that enables you to fulfill your God-given purpose in your life. And no amount of good or bad circumstance will stay, stand in the way of that. And that is what enables Paul to write the book of Philippians literally from a jail cell and say, I've been hungry and well-fed, and I've learned the secret to being content in any and all circumstances. It's Christ who gives me strength. Even chained to a wall, you could not stop Paul because his kingdom advancing was the only thing he required for peace. There was a Romanian pastor who kept getting arrested for talking about Jesus, and he has this quote that I love so much. It'll be on the screen. He wrote this in a book. During an interrogation, I had told an officer who threatened to kill me, Sir, let me explain how I see this. Your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Here's how it works. You know that my sermons on tape have spread all over the country. If you kill me, those sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. Everyone will know I died for my preaching. And everyone who has a tape will pick it up and say, I'd better listen again to what this man preached because he really meant it. He sealed it with his life. So, sir, my sermons will speak 10 times louder than before. I will actually rejoice in this supreme victory if you kill me. The officer then sent me home. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever heard a story that better illustrates the idea of requiring nothing for peace but the kingdom of God. Because you can't stop a guy like that. Good luck. His hope is not fragile. Jesus is saying here that nothing can stop you from fulfilling your purpose on earth of glorifying God. So there can be steak and ribs on the table, and you can say, man, how good is God? What good gifts he gives, but the best gift still is himself. Or there can be mayonnaise and mustard sandwiches on the table. I ate those growing up all the time. It's pretty good. And you can say, hey, steak would be nice, but I'm good. I'm good. Every breath I, get, every breath I breathe is a gift of grace, and my real feast is coming in heaven. So I'm good. I don't know if you guys have ever noticed this, but uh, poor people tend to be more sensitive to their need for God's help. 
Because their physical need actually helps them realize their spiritual need for God. And rich folks tend to be more hard-hearted toward God than poor people. Not always, but often. And I'll never forget some trips to impoverished countries. I got to go on uh, to Mexico and Guatemala and El Salvador. And as a college student, I had this sharp realization working with some of those groups that some of those people there living in those conditions seem more grateful and content and joyful than most of the people that I knew. That was shocking to me. Even their kids running around with old clothes and tattered soccer balls seemed happier than the kids I knew back home. And if you've never heard a genuinely poor Christian in a context like that pray over a meal, watch out for the tears if you ever experience that. They are more grateful for that food than I've ever been about anything in my life. They pray and it's just like, God, you did it. You're amazing. You gave us food to eat. This is incredible. There's a childlike dependence and joy there. And we as a culture have the least amount of lack as any culture ever, yet we often sense profound lack in our lives. And it produces this rampant discontentment and restlessness and anxiety in us. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says this. It says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And I would argue that the cause of all of that restless discontentment is, is from us actually reaping the accumulated consequences of refusing to obey that command. Refusing to obey the command to give thanks in all circumstances. We disobey that command to our own detriment, and now we operate out of a great gratitude deficit. Because when you exist as a consumer and you fail to truly give thanks for what you have and grow contentment, the compound effect of failure to give thanks over time causes you to only see what you lack. It's all we can think about and see, what we don't have. So I don't know what your level of income is, but what I do know for sure is that God gave you that money. Whatever you have, God saw fit to get that to you. Do you know why? Because he wanted you to have it. That is the calling he put on your life. He chose you to be rich. He chose for you to be born into the family you were with the capacities and opportunities that you have in the society that you are so that you would be rich. And he wants you to enjoy that but he also wants you to be grateful for it and not greedy. He wants you to learn how to give thanks in every circumstance, and he wants you to be generous because you know he is the one who actually takes care of you. All right, we'll wrap up the passage here. Uh, Verse 33, remember that Jesus is talking to his disciples again about their anxiety. Verse 33, Sell your possessions and give to the needy and provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So here Jesus crystallizes this truth at the root of all we've talked about this morning, that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your wallet is, there is your heart. That's what your heart loves most. That's what your heart is most attached to. That's what your heart most believes is going to fix you. That's what you're seeking after and demanding. That's your fragile God. 
And his disciples would have put this instruction together with uh, what Jesus told the rich young ruler. Because there was this wealthy young religious man who came to Jesus and wanted to know what he needed to do to enter Jesus' kingdom. And Jesus knew that his money was his God. So he looks at the man and told him, go sell everything you have. And the guy in the story walks away sad. And in case you're thinking that Jesus was a little harsh there, remember what we have covered this morning. Jesus was not trying to encumber him with a burdensome request. He was trying to free him. This man walked up to Jesus, and it was like he was invisibly carrying all that he owned, all of his money and all of his possessions, all the things he's been gathering to ward off fear. Fear of being without, fear of being insignificant in the world's eyes, fear of being out of control. And the weight of all of that is producing a crushing anxiety in him because it will never, ever be enough. And Jesus, in love, sees all of that below the surface. And he wants him to be free. So he says the only thing that will truly bring freedom and joy and lightness to him. Brother, go sell everything you have. It was the most loving thing he could have possibly told the man. And instead of trusting and repenting, instead of laying all of his hard-fought burdens down, he walked away sad. He walked away carrying all of the anxiety he walked in with. So if you struggle with the area of generosity, if it's an area of weakness for you, I don't want you to see this as some unreasonable or burdensome request. I want you to feel the invitation with the same tone that verse 32 reads. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Your Father in heaven wants to teach you that you can trust Him. He wants to free you from the fear and anxiety that overattachment to money creates in your heart. And his abundant goodness, he wants to give you the kingdom, eternal joy and peace and lightness that comes from a healthy detachment from stuff and a healthy attachment to God as Father. But just like the rich young ruler, he can't give you the kingdom if your arms have a death grip around all that you own. And he's given you a method to change what you care most about, generosity. Because when you start to give away what you think you need, you realize you don't need it after all. When you start to give away what your heart was overattached to, your heart learns that it can thrive without that thing. You realize that your thoughts and values about money were shaped by people like Edward Bernays, people that do not have your best interests in mind and want to profit off of your anxiety and addiction to buying. Jesus wants to free you from all of that. So with all that said, I want to wrap up by telling you uh, how God has gone about doing this maturing work in me and freed me from a lot of my anxiety around money. I told you earlier that when I was three, I didn't have a care in the world because I trusted that my parents were going to take care of everything. Uh, Shockingly, I didn't stay three. Didn't stay three. And from a young age, not much older than three, uh, I have always had an anxious personality. And from early on, money was a big branch that my tree of anxiety grew on. I never went without food or shelter in my family, thank God. But early on, I came to believe that resources were scarce and you had to work hard for them. 
And I'm incredibly thankful for the ways I was raised because I believe it produced gratitude and work ethic in me that I'm thankful for. When I was about 13 or 14, uh, my parents basically said, hey, if you want money to do anything, you're going to need to get a job. So I did. I worked at a car wash first. Uh, I worked in a cotton mill all through high school. So when I talk to a 23-year-old who's never had a part-time job, I'm always like, let me tell you about high school for me. <laughs> let me tell you about high school. Uh, school till 4 o'clock, football or baseball practice until about 7, and then to the cotton mill until about 11, and then home to do my homework after that. And to be fair, I only did that two or three nights a week, but I don't tell them that, of course. <laughs> right? It's my version of walking to the school in the snow uphill both ways, okay? Don't take that from me. But money was always a precious resource to me. And I remember from an early age, when I would get money for my birthday even, my mom would tell me, hey, I think it would be good for you to learn how to, to tithe off of that $100 bill you just got. And I'd be like, but mom, then I'll only have 90. And she would say, I know, that's good for you. It teaches you that God's going to take care of you. But it was always a struggle for me. And I'd do it sometimes, and then other times I'd be like, and I only made $60 at the cotton mill this week. I can't give six away. I can't do that. And my soul would just crumple up with anxiety. And as I got older in late high school and college, I watched severe financial hardship hit my family, and that made things even harder for me. As I got married and we uh, contemplated starting a family, we got into a rhythm of giving 10% to our church. And it wasn't always easy, but I saw the, the tentacles of my worry and anxiety kind of loosening a little bit. And then several years ago, I hit this point where I was just overtaken with fear of the future and primarily fear of providing well and taking care of my family. That has always been a crippling fear for me. And I started looking at our income and budget and how much student loan debt we still had piled up from undergrad and grad school and what we weren't doing, things like saving for retirement and even remotely sniffing saving for kids' education. And I just kind of had this freak out moment, this, this panic where I sat down with some trusted friends and I laid all this out for them. And I said, hey, I'm, I'm really, really struggling with all this. And they looked at me and they said, hey, we think you're doing exactly what you are supposed to because God is growing you and he's freeing you through this and he's going to take care of you. And now as I look back on that former version of myself, honestly, I just smile at past me, all knotted up with anxiety because I currently am freer from that anxiety and fear than I've ever been. God has continued to show himself faithful in so many ways as we've continued to give. We've continued to pay down debt and we're almost out of student loans and uh, we started saving a little bit for retirement because I assume at some point you guys are gonna be like, hey man, you're not cutting anymore. So uh, you can go preach at the old folks home maybe or something like that, but I don't know. We still haven't saved for college. We're just banking on our kids being really smart or pursuing other trades. We turned out fine after all, so we think we're cool with that. And increasingly so, every month when I see our giving to our church come out, I don't do what I used to, because I used to kind of inwardly cringe just a little bit and think about what percentage of our mortgage that is or what else we could pay off or save or do with that money. But now I just smile and my soul feels freer than it ever has. I think about God's faithfulness in my life, his provision, and think about our church and how glad I am to have a church that I'm not embarrassed to invite people to. That is a joy for me. 
I think about you guys and how what we are doing here is eternal. And I think about my kids having a place to grow up in and learn about Jesus and hopefully get shored up from the barrage of cultural lies that will be assaulting them from every angle. I think about the building that we're in the process of buying and how it'll be an amazing home base for ministry for years to come. And I still have financial anxiety from time to time, but it's better than it ever has been because I'm being freed from being required to have a certain amount of money to have peace. His kingdom is ever more precious to me. What I've learned through all of that is that generosity needs to be joyful and painful. Joyful and painful. God loves a cheerful giver and our lives are be lived in response to God and his generosity to us in the gospel. So our giving should have joy behind it, motivating it, but it should also be painful. And much of the time, the joy comes through the pain. The painful part is how God grows us. So our standard of giving should be that we give until it hurts. We give in such a way that our standard of living is impeded by it. So if a person who's not a Christian makes the same amount of money as you, you should have a lower standard of living than they do because you are giving away money that you can't spend on yourself. And then lastly, generosity needs to be planned and spontaneous. Planned and spontaneous. So if you only operate with spontaneity, then you'll find out over time that you give away less overall. But if you only give what you plan, then it's possible for control to be the driving force in your life instead of God's spirit and to shut your compassion down for situations you didn't foresee. So for my family, we set aside 10% of our income each month to give to our church. That's actually what all of our members agree to in the covenant so that our church has the funding we need to operate. This is how the portion of our member covenant reads. It says, generosity is giving to God's mission and learning to trust him more than our wealth. Therefore, I commit to give 10% to the mission of Jesus through Midtown as a starting point for generosity. So for us, that money goes out of our account first. We factor that in before we decide on a house to buy or a car to buy or vacations to take or clothes to wear or anything else. Generosity, especially to our church, comes first. And then we have some room in our budget for extra generosity to missionaries and things outside of our church that we believe in. And certain times, other needs come up, uh, for example, that we need to buy a building, (laughs) And I don't know about you guys, but we didn't have a savings account titled New Building Fund. (laughs) But we did have one uh, that we were saving up to replace our floors. So we just renamed that account New Building Fund. (laughs) And now we have one. And if any or all of this feels unreasonable to you, my hope is that after today, you might see that the reason it feels unreasonable is that Edward Bernays and large corporations have convinced you that you need far more than you actually do so that they can profit off of your consumerism and anxiety, and therefore you have no room for generosity in your budget. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, all I want for you is Jesus. And I hope that what we talked about today sticks with you, that your anxiety will always be proportional to how fragile your God is. And in the most loving way, I hope that haunts you from now until you trust Jesus in the most loving way possible. If you are a Christian who is not giving faithfully and sacrificially, I invite you to prayerfully change that. And you might be one of the extenuating circumstances we talk about in a membership class where it might not be wise for you to give right now because if you did, we'd just be giving money back to you to help you pay your bills. But you're probably not. More likely, you're in the grouping where this is an area of weakness for you. You're where I used to be, gripped by fear and anxiety, and God wants to set you free from that. But there's only one way to do that. It requires a loosening of your hands 
around your wallet. So God's promise of, of freedom is for all of us, and it is not easy in our culture of anxiety and manufactured needs. But it is possible. And if we want to become a countercultural, free, compelling disciple of Jesus, this has to be a bedrock discipline for us. Generosity is the only path that leads there. So may we have the trust and courage to walk in. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for, for Jesus. Thank you for your great and un, immeasurable generosity to us in the gospel. Thank you that uh, we are called to, to give in light of that unmerited grace and generosity that you've shown us through Christ. Um, to give, give cheerfully, knowing that you are freeing us from the tentacles of worry and discontentment and anxiety. So I pray that you would do that supernatural work in us because it certainly requires your spirit. We cannot do that on our own. Please help us to walk in this, uh, to trust you in this, and to, to go through the pain so we can get to the joy. Thank you for uh, being our Father in heaven who knows what we need even before we ask, and who always commits to giving us everything we need to glorify you in each of our days. Uh, thank you for how much you love us, how good you are to us. Uh, we love you so much, and thank you for Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this audio from Midtown Fellowship in Lexington. We are in the middle of a two-month capital campaign to raise money to buy a permanent facility on East Main Street, right in the heart of Lexington, South Carolina. If you have been blessed at all by this podcast and would like to give to that over and above your regular giving to your church, wherever you call home, we would love to have you participate. Feel free to visit movetoeastmain.com for more information.